This is the DevSecOps Days Podcast. DevSecOps Days Podcast is supported by OWASP, dedicated to enabling organizations to conceive, develop, acquire, operate, and maintain applications that can be trusted. And with support from the Sonatype Nexus platform, allowing companies to automatically control open source risk. Hi, this is Mark Miller in New York City with Chris Roberts in Denver and Eric Weeks in Washington, D.C. We're here to talk about the event stream event that happened over the past week and also to look at historically what are the patterns that we're starting to see on a regular basis when it comes to this kind of social engineering. Chris Roberts, uh, good to see you again, as always. You too, sir. Very good to be on here. Thank you very much. And Derek, I saw you yesterday, but it's still nice to see you again. <laughs> uh, likewise, Mark, always. And yeah. Chris, good to see you as well. You too, sir. For those of you that are listening to the podcast and not viewing the video, we will have the slides available as part of the resources for the podcast so that you can follow along. I'll start first with introductions. Chris, can you tell a little uh, bit about yourself for people that don't know you? Uh, yeah, Chris Roberts. I've been creeping around this industry for you know, 20, 30 plus years uh, and uh, obviously working with HHS, working with the TIVO and uh, helping out the DevOps and DevSecOps teams. Great. Thank you. Derek Weeks. Yeah, I'm uh, Derek Weeks. I'm Vice President and DevSecOps Advocate at Sonotype. I've uh, also been creeping around this industry for around 20, but not yet 30 plus years across organizations. So uh, uh, also co-founder of all Day DevOps, uh, along with Mark Miller here. Yeah, just general uh, advocate around DevSecOps topics. So happy to be here chatting with you today. The thing that popped up this week that's drawing everybody's attention, event stream, the MPM package code injection. Derek, how about a 30-second overview? What is the event that happened? What are we talking about? Earlier this week, I think uh, a lot of people were getting notification of a new vulnerable piece of open source code uh, in the Node.js community or NPM packages. This was a, a very interesting scenario in that it was a socially engineered malicious code injection into a very popular open source project called EventStream and, and specific, more specifically into one of its dependencies um, that was uh, FlatMap. This uh, particular open source component uh, was being deployed about or, or being downloaded about 2 million times a week. And the malicious code was looking for opportunities to steal cryptocurrencies from people that were using applications that had uh, embedded this particular open source component in it. Uh, so I think as soon as people learned about it, uh, like all the other kind of open source vulnerabilities or, or vulnerabilities found in applications, they said, if we ever use that open source component, uh, if we have, where is it? Because we want to uh, update to the latest, safest version, or perhaps just remove that version from uh, our applications. We saw that uh, immediately come out from the BitPay uh, organization in their um, their CoPay wallet uh, application that had this particular component in it. They told people, uh, their users, to immediately stop using certain versions of their application because they knew that that open source component was in there. Uh, and they were redirecting them to use the later versions of uh, or most 
recently released versions of their application to avoid uh, impact by this vulnerability. Chris, the interesting thing for me on this one is it's not so much as a hack as, as it is a social engineering on this one. Yeah, wholeheartedly agree. If you look at the timeline, you've only got to go back to, I think it was September or September of this year when uh, the, you know, the initial conversation happened between, uh, you know, the individual and Dominic, basically, you know, Dominic's, Dominic has, you know, built it, did, did an amazing job on it and said, okay, my work here is done, wandered off into the sunset, not realizing, I think, quite the, the implications. And then somebody else comes along and says, hey, look, you know, I know you're off doing other things. How about I look after and I maintain it for you? And to some degree, rightly so, it's like, hey, brilliant. Somebody else wants to pick up that baton and keep going with it. And and a lot of us in the industry are like, well, that's marvelous. I, I get help on this. And unfortunately, help was not necessarily the end goal in mind for the individual in question. But uh, yeah, again, human-based attack. No fit, you know, no phishing necessary, no passwords necessary, just simply reaching out and going, hey, let me help you. As we were talking to Brian Fox about it too, Brian said, this is the core of what open source is about. The idea that, hey, can I help you? Is there something I can do on your project? And now for people to start using that as an introduction to get credibility so that they can do this kind of stuff, Derek, that's relatively new. Yeah, I think this is the first instance that we've seen of malicious code injection into an open source project that was uh, socially engineered. We've seen other uh, such attacks where people are either typo squatting, so changing you know, a letter or two in the name of a, an open source project to kind of mimic uh, that, that open source project if someone misspells it, or we've seen people that stole the credentials of an open source maintainer uh, in order to inject malicious code that way. You know, as Brian mentioned, this is like, and you know, Chris mentions, this is how open source works. Like, yeah. I have a package, I want people around the community to help maintain it. There are lots of community contributors and always have been since you know, the earliest days of, of Linux. We want this kind of behavior to happen. This is how we all stand on the shoulders of giants. Uh, in, in the open source community, um, but in this particular case, uh, yeah, the, the end game was a, a little different than let's make your project better. Uh, your project has gotten so popular that it's being downloaded two million times a week that I see a great dissemination engine for my you know, malware. If you look at the timeline, as Chris said, start with the timeline and move forward, the injection was put in Evidently, whoever put it in was looking to get it into a specific company. And as yep. soon as it hit that company, he pulled and put the good version back. Chris, did you see that? Did you read about that? Uh, I saw a little bit on the timeline on that one because it gets a little convoluted because it got taken over. I think it was like early September. And then middle of September, somebody else comes into it and turns around and actually modifies it again. And then somebody in October remodifies the whole thing. So you've got a takeover in early September, and then you've got secondary and tertiary takeovers from then. It's actually interesting. But you're right. The code got taken out basically like October, November time, early, late October, mid November time frame or something like that. Yeah, it was in for a specific reason. But to your point, unfortunately, at that point, you know, so many other people had had it downloaded. Derek, we've got other stats to look at. You want to pull up that first slide that you've got? This is one that takes a look that's just as scary as the event. 
This shows it on a much larger scale. Derek, give us a rundown of this slide. Yeah, so for those of you listening through the, the podcast and not seeing the slides, uh, this was an interesting set of data that was released by the folks at NPM who run the JavaScript public repository that, that holds all the NPM packages. Uh, Lori Voss there, who is one of their co-founders and I believe their CTO, uh, if I remember his title uh, correctly, released a presentation in, in mid-October, which I uh, uh, stumbled across uh, that one of our team members actually shared with me, uh, talking about the percentage of packages downloaded from the NPM repository that have known vulnerabilities associated with them. Um, now, I've been following Lori uh, and chatting with the NPM organization for a couple of years now, uh, and I'm always fascinated when Lori, you know, frequently posts on Twitter. He's at, at Seldo. He posts on Twitter, you know, the, the number of increasing downloads NPM has experienced over the years. And over the past two years, I've seen him report, you know, in the last week, we just had 4 billion downloads, then it was 5 billion, then 6 billion uh, back in August of this year. And I think in October, he had uh, published that they were up to 7 billion JavaScript package downloads a week. But in October, they also started to publish information about the percentage of vulnerable components being downloaded and noted that they saw 51% of the NPM package downloads from their repository containing known vulnerabilities. So half of what was being downloaded in those billions of downloads had known vulnerabilities in that, them. That's astounding. We've also reported through the software supply chain report uh, effort that I've championed over the last four years, uh, that the downloads from the Maven Central repository uh, last year were 12%, or about one in eight downloads from that repository having known vulnerabilities. Um, so th there are certainly known vulnerabilities across different ecosystems. The JavaScript numbers are new to us. Uh, and when he said 51% had known vulnerabilities, of those, 37% of the overall downloads had high-level vulnerabilities, and 11% had critical-level uh, vulnerabilities. It's not really an apples-to-apples comparison between Java components and JavaScript packages, because the packages contain many more components than just a, a single element. But it does point to the fact that th this is code that our organizations are not developing ourselves. You're relying on open source project developers and maintainers to create code that they're experts in um, that they put on these public repositories that we can all download for free in a second because we don't want to spend months or weeks developing it ourselves. So th this is code we're bringing in from sometimes unknown sources of unknown origin and, and in many cases of unknown quality simply because there's no quality metrics that necessarily come along with these downloads. So it's up to the people consuming them to either evaluate themselves or use tools to evaluate what is the quality of these components that I'm sourcing into my organization and also what's the security of them. Chris, when I first saw this, you and I saw this one type of thing back in London when we were at DevSecOps days. It's still hard for me to wrap my head around this. Uh, yeah, I mean it's it, it's hard, but it's not it's it's but it's totally understandable. Again, it, it comes back to you know ex exactly what Derek was saying, which is 
you've got you know people like myself who are sitting there who are like hey i need a widget i need something to work i need a package i need something inside of a package i'm going to build it myself and it's done at three o'clock in the morning you know with a cup of coffee or a glass of beer or a good glass of single malt and i whip it out i get it out i do it it works for what i want and i drop it up there because other people can use it it's not perfect and i think that's the challenge is somebody then comes along and goes well this is cool I'm, I'm going to use it and they use it without thinking of the potential consequences that it was coded at three o'clock in the morning probably you know stumbling drunk and that's part of and then we put it into critical systems and we do everything else with it but nobody's nobody puts me on the hook to say hey your code's crap or this was good but this was terrible or why the hell did you forget to do a b and c and nobody downloading it, or some people downloading it, most people downloading it don't take the extra steps or the extra time to go, okay, I'm borrowing it from an open source area. I think because so often when we first started the whole open source thing, you go back a long, long time ago, the concept of open source was all three of us could sit down, evaluate the limited number of packages, make all the updates, make all the changes, and we were a close-knit community who were able to basically double check everything that everybody did and it was a lot better. Well, that's exploded over the years and now you have tens, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people putting code out there with a little validation, second set of eyes, checks and balances and sums against it, if that makes sense. In general, when it started out, JavaScript was seen as a kiddie language. This is just a little language that people are playing around with. And yes. it's grown so much beyond that. As you were talking to, it re reminds me too of what's happening with the app stores. People oh, yeah. can do the exact same thing in the app stores that they're doing. Oh. Well, I mean, there's, there's, there's been numerous examples of that. I mean, <clears throat> perfect example. Uh, I get asked on a regular basis, uh, hey, do you know any good password tools for like saving passwords in secure safes? And I'm like, yes, there are some good ones. But if you go onto the App Store, and I don't care if it's Apple's App Store, Android's App Store, or heck, even the one that's in your blasted car these days, you're going to find the official one, and then you're going to find 20 different clones of it. And some of them are getting maintained and monitored by people that we probably don't want to be handing our passwords to. But they still get through the checks and balances. They still appear on the stores, and people will still just go, hey, I like that. I'm going to click on it without thinking of the consequences. Derek, the thing that you're finding too is there's been a movement towards, instead of breaking things and getting at stuff, people are actually turning it on its head and using the computer power to do bit mining. Yeah, to, to see the crypto mining come into to play here. And interesting thing about this uh, malicious code injection, and we've seen, I'll put up a slide that shows a pattern of different malicious code injection or typo squatting that we've seen over the, the last couple of years. Um, but the, the kind of you know interesting creativity efficiencies seen by uh, hackers and adversary organizations is, you know, if, if I'm interested in uh, Bitcoin or any other kind of cryptocurrencies, the one thing that I know I need uh, in order to mine cryptocurrencies is computing power and computing power is expensive. Cryptocurrency is more valuable because uh, it takes more computing power. Well, if you can find a bit of code that is deployed on 2 million servers a week, and you can find your way into injecting your crypto mining capabilities into those uh, particular applications using 
that open source component, for instance, you're then able to very quickly steal someone's computing power uh, with relative ease to introduce your, your code there, be able to do your crypto mining, and maybe you're there for a week or maybe two months uh, until you get noticed or until you've made enough money and then you can kind of move on. We saw that crypto uh, cryptocurrency related hack with EventStream. We saw it with Jenkins X, uh, I think earlier in 2018. Now, if I remember that was back in January or February, we also saw it with, uh, with Struts vulnerabilities that people were attaching crypto miners to vulnerable versions of Struts out there uh, because they could find those easily and they could uh, inject their um, uh, their malicious code on there and steal that computing power. In many ways, it's just the efficiency of the criminal organizations to look for, you know, what's the easiest way to find two million computers to do work for me? It surprises me though, as we're talking about this, Chris, that someone wouldn't notice at that level how much computing power is being pulled from their system. Well, I mean, okay, so I mean, if, if you look at it, you potentially in a server farm or potentially in somewhere where they are actually monitoring, and this is the challenge, the statistics are there, but it doesn't necessarily mean that somebody's actually watching those stats or doing the monitoring. Uh, back to the crypto mining stuff, I mean, you look at the early days of crypto mining, we used to use it in watering holes, we'd go and take it out on just regular websites, and we download it, but we'd only harvest off a certain amount of the CPU clock or the CPU or the GPU cycles. So it's not even potentially CPU cycles, I'm taking GPU cycles. So I'm not affecting your ability to do work, I'm just affecting some of the GPU stuff instead. And that's a bit of a big difference as well. So I'm really gonna not affect it that much. Now, unless they're watching network traffic as well as browser traffic, as well as processor, CPU and memory, and somebody's watching that across their entire farm, there's little chance of them watching it or People, I mean, you think about how many people these days are, are always complaining about how slow the computer is running or how the challenges or how they need an upgrade. You don't necessarily always equate it with the fact that it's a browser-based attack. It's like, oh, I'm filling up my hard drive. I've got too many windows open. You know, Firefox has eaten all of my CPU again for whatever reason, or, you know, semantics just chewed up most of it because I put, you know, endpoint and protection on the darn thing. Derek, you have another slide that's talking about time to remediation here. You want to walk through that one? The story here is, is a really interesting one. There are a couple of things at play here. When we look at malicious code injection into the software supply chain, especially through the open source community and open source software components that are, that are being developed, you know, it, it used to be, if we think back to 2017 and you know Apache struts that impacted Equifax, but it also you know, the, the breach not only happened at Equifax, it was at the GMO payment gateway, Japanese Post, Canada Revenue Service, India Post, all within days of, of one another. In that particular case, a vulnerability was discovered. Apache Struts project was notified. They worked with the security researchers to update Struts. They released a new version on the same day that they announced the vulnerable version. From a hacker's perspective, it was a kind of wait for the new vulnerability to be announced and then race to exploit that. And in the case of Equifax and others that I mentioned that were breached there, it was a matter of, of three days. It used to be you know, that when a vulnerability was announced, you might have had weeks to 
even a couple of months before the exploits were out on public servers or databases uh, or you know now GitHub uh, where, where they're being released. You, you had a certain amount of time to react. That reaction time is compressing significantly, not only in the wait and pray instances, but in the uh, instances of malicious code injection, that time between vulnerability exposure, the breach of that system through that vulnerability is zero. Uh, you've engineered the malware or the malicious code into the open source project. As soon as that gets deployed, you're actively able to take advantage of it. That's one of the, the big changes that we've seen in the last few years, um, really the last two years at most, through the open source community being infiltrated by the, these adversaries and their code being infiltrated by these adversaries. I think on the, the flip side of this, it's interesting to understand how organizations are behaving. We, we talk a lot about DevSecOps, you know, let's move faster, let's get code out to market faster. Oh, and by the way, it has to be secure, so let's bake security into the process. I've talked to organizations that say, hey, we used to deploy new code in, you know, once every six weeks or once every six months, and we've knocked that down to we can deploy six times a day. And, you know, we're doing, you know, we have security embedded uh, into the practice. If you're an organization that says, hey, I've made all these advances with DevOps and DevSecOps, and I'm deploying new secure code fast as once a week, but the hackers are able to get into new exploits within a day or two, you're still not fast enough. You know, a lot of what we talk about is can you automate faster than evil? It's not just automating to get faster. It's your adversaries are getting even faster. Uh, on a daily basis, are you automating to the point that you can move faster than they can or remediate faster than they can? In the case of event stream, how fast could you find if you ever use that? What, you know, did you use it? If you did where, then how fast can you remediate it before that's being exploited? Yeah, I'm gonna just inject on this one just a little bit if you don't mind. It's the criminal element that are actually taking advantage of this. Um, those of us that are the hackers are actually trying to do as much as we can to actually help the organizations identify and understand what the problems are. So uh, just want to make that distinction very quickly. The, the thing that's that's happening too, Chris, yeah, thank you for that, because I know that's one of the, the things that you're advocating a lot when I see you in public. But let's get the terminology right to start. It seems to me when you think about it, we could actually flip this chart upside down and now go below the line when it comes to uh, doing this kind of thing. It's like if you take the uh, event stream as an example, there was no time to fix this. Correct. Yeah, I mean, this this had originally occurred and this had been working for a period of time. But I mean, it's the same thing. I mean, if you look at it a different way. Let's just say we'll we'll pick on you know we'll pick on you know product X. I find a vulnerability in product X, which is a browser. I have a number of different commercial or non-commercial esoteric or altruistic opportunities. I can produce an exploit for that, and I can sell it to the highest bidder, be it a government, state, or be it back to the company itself. I can do the altruistic thing, which is basically get hold of the company and say. 
you know, I can actually do something where it's, hey, you've got 30 days to fix this. So I'm actually doing uh, disclosure, responsible disclosure on this. If I get nothing, I can obviously publish it. And if I publish it at the moment, it's, you know, two to three days before something happens. If I do the altruistic thing, then hopefully it gets fixed. If I do the commercial thing, the chances of it being discovered for a number of years is very, very minimal. So that below the line arguably is already in place. Back to what you were saying, Mark, is, you know, they had a couple of months runway of this before anybody knew anything was going on. It's the same thing with the vulnerabilities we had on the processors and various other things. There's, it's, it's that challenge, you know, there's so much out there that is arguably broken. The race is now to find the most useful tech, the most useful bits of that broken tech and then decide what to do with it. Am I going to exploit it for personal gain? Am I going to exploit it for mining? Am I going to try to tell the world about it? Am I going to try to get it fixed? Or do I just hand it over to a state government and let them have at it? Well, the interesting thing, too, when you think historically, if you think about how long SSH was out there before mm. there was a public notification that there was a problem, we have no idea who was taking advantage of that for a decade before that Mark, I want to go back to, to something that you said that doesn't leave everyone in this kind of we're helpless attitude. And part of what you said, we were talking about below the line. I want to be uh, cognizant of people that are listening to this and not seeing the, the graphic. Below the line means, you know, from the time a vulnerability is discovered until it is, it's exploited, how many days is that? In the cases where malicious code is injected, it's basically zero that the code, malicious code was injected into the open source component. It was deployed into production. As soon as it's deployed, the adversaries can take advantage of that vulnerability that they've engineered into that software. Uh, and you were saying, hey, the organization that deployed that had no time to react before the adversaries could take advantage of it. The reality is that organization developing software, whether it's Copay or any other organization, voluntarily downloaded event stream and flat map stream and took pieces of code that they didn't develop, put them into their software, integrated it into their code, staged and tested and released their application into production or to consumers. There is a time between when that organization downloaded it and when that component got deployed in their application that they did have time. If you don't care about what you're downloading and putting into your application and deploying, you're right, you have zero time to react to this. In terms of- But is it reasonable to assume every company's gonna do the drill down to make that happen? No. Here's the situation where we're at. No, like today, is it reasonable? Absolutely not. Virtually no one is checking what the quality of the code is that they're pulling down from the internet. That being said, like, do you have a responsibility? If I'm co one of Copay's users, um, and I don't know anyone at that organization, uh, you know, anyone that works there that, that I'm aware of, but if I'm a customer of theirs and I'm using that software and it has a vulnerability in it. Is Copay liable if I lost any cryptocurrency in that transaction? Now, if they didn't know about it, maybe they're not liable. 
if they didn't take enough precaution in the code that they were bringing in to look at this, maybe there is some liability. If it so, was the case of this was a known, when, when we you know, presented our first slide, a known vulnerable JavaScript package that they're downloading today, it has a known vulnerability in it. The vulnerability has already been discovered maybe three years ago. And you take that package and you put that into your code today, are you liable? Yes, it's the equivalent of deploying a Takata uh, or, or putting a Takata airbag into a Toyota car and shipping it off the production line today, knowing that that Takata airbag has uh, a defect in it, right? You, you're liable so, but, but for that. So here's, the, here's, the, here's the thing, though. I mean, if you think about it, so this is but, in theory, this is but one aspect of what you would look at as security in depth, traditional or new look at it or whatever. Arguably, exactly to Mark's point earlier, which is, would we notice somebody using browser, using more processing, using more capacity on a system, a server, and architecture? Would we notice exfiltration inside an organization? You use Copay as an example. You know, what is Copay doing? I know a few things that they're doing, so they, they at least have some mitigating controls in place, but that now relies on a human or some kind of augmented system to say, hey, by the way, utilization was X, it's now Y, what the heck changed? And then being able to back into it and realize you downloaded something that shouldn't have been downloaded or that you've just found something nasty in there. So there's an argument to say, obviously, if people are relying solely on downloaded code, signing off on it and saying, have at it, then yeah, there's, there's definitely some people need to kick in the ass. But if they've got other controls in place and they're paying attention, at least there's some mitigating controls potentially. One yeah. of the things that I, I want to do to make sure that we we clarify here, I don't want to have the three of us standing here screaming fire. I mean, <laughs> without saying, okay, the fire hydrant is over here. So yeah. What are we looking for as far as uh, remediating this kind of stuff? I'll start with you, Derek. What are we looking for here to help out? Yeah, I'm going to go back to the first slide that we put up. Uh, I think it was the, or the second slide that we put up on you know the percentage of JavaScript packages being downloaded uh, that have known vulnerabilities. NPM says it's 51% of the packages JavaScript developers are pulling down into their organizations have a known vulnerability. One, are you even aware of the, this particular statistic? More importantly, are you aware of what you're pulling down from the, the internet? If you're not even aware of what you're pulling down, meaning you, you know that you're pulling down and you're keeping track of what you pulled down. So when someone says, hey, uh, event stream and flat map stream version 1.1.4 had this you know, vulnerability in it, do you know that you even use that? And if you did, could you find it? If you have no idea, you can't even begin to address the kind of problems that, that we've been talking about because you don't know what you've consumed and, and where you've put it. The, the beginning of the story, and we talked about this uh, you know, a month or so ago with Topo at Capital One, and we asked, you know, how do you begin to address this problem? The first thing is you have to know that you're using it, and not only do you have to know, you have to keep track of what you're using. And that's really half the battle. You might not keep up with all the vulnerabilities, but if a vulnerability is disclosed, if you're keeping track of what you're using where, at least you can find it and begin your remediation path versus going off and starting a scavenger hunt you know, on Monday because you got the news about EventStream and you're wondering, where did we ever use that? Now you have a team of six people searching for it. 
that might finish two months from now? You know, I think that there's a number of things. It comes back to, there's a few things. I mean, you, you take the easy one, you take the stuff that Derek was talking about, which is if I'm downloading and I'm deploying, what am I doing to do any, any sanity checks between that download and that deployment to production? How am I validating what I've brought down? How am I doing analysis on it? How am I building in, you know, the, the dev and obviously the second, the ops side of it. So what automated, what manual testing am I doing before I'm throwing it up there? That should pull in a lot of that. And if all of a sudden you suddenly have the red flag of a whole bunch of JavaScript issues on there, then you've got to look at what you're downloading and how you're doing it. But there's there's ways of dealing with this, but I think it's you have to have a much more mature process. Plus, mm. let's face it, I mean, let's take a look at the Sonos type stuff. I mean, you have to then turn around and say, what methodologies are in place for us to actually track what packages and what data we are bringing into an environment and how can we validate what those are and how good or how bad or ugly they are. I mean, that, that's really your two options at that point. Yeah, Mark, I, I want to share a story that was uh, like, it still excites me from a couple of, uh, couple of weeks ago. I was in DC at a OWASP uh, meetup and I was presenting information about open source consumption and vulnerabilities, et cetera. One of the guys sitting in the audience, a developer, during my presentation, we had a lot of you know, interaction with the, the crowd there, the, the meetup. Um, he said, you know what? I just received an email alert that part of the code that I have in my GitHub repository has a vulnerability in it. I've been alerted as a developer in my developer tool that I have a security vulnerability and I can go and fix that. That to me was, oh my gosh, one, someone's paying attention to what the quality and security of their code is. Two, he's not a security professional, he's a developer. Security professionals might be involved behind the scenes, but as a developer, he's getting information that's useful to him inside the tool that he's already using to develop and design whatever application he's working on. And that was kind of a, you know, a really interesting moment for everyone to kind of realize, wait, you know, there's a, a different pattern here. It's not necessarily security professionals with security tooling and security, you know, processes. Those are absolutely needed, but here's a developer developing code using, uh, you know, open source components uh, and being able, be, being able to use his own tools to get intelligence about the quality and security of that code and to make a difference at the design stage without involving a security professional that he had to he had to actually talk to his tool told him through the automated intelligence you know in in github i i don't know what application he was using if it was a plugin or if it was standard github but just the fact that that experience happened told me kind of the rules of how we do security are changing and who does security and where they're involved in the development life cycle. The final thing I would want to cover today, and this is the biggest argument that's been going on this week for the, the event stream, is who ultimately is responsible for what happened? <laughs> Chris, you're starting, to, both of you are laughing already, but yeah. you know, the guy that wrote it said, look, I gave it to the community I haven't touched it for two years. I don't even pay attention to it anymore. How can you make me responsible? And then you've got a hundred people making him responsible. Yeah. Where, where are we going with this? 
I, I would not lay the blame at Dominic's feet in any way, shape, or form. Um, I kind of side with him. It's like, look, I built something. I put it out there. The community's up for it. Now, the challenge is the community as a whole needs to look after the damn thing. The problem is, you know, it, it's tough because he built something that is being used in so many different places. So is there some inherent, you know, is there some inherent nurturing that needs to happen with that on an ongoing basis? Yes and no, but, you know, it's, there's the challenge. I, I don't, I would not lay the blame there. I wouldn't necessarily lay the blame at NMP. I would definitely look to the individuals that are downloading it, to Derek's point, just downloading it for the heck of it, throwing it in, crossing their fingers and putting it in production. To me, it's everybody who's using it has responsibility to understand what they're using. You know, it, we all have to have that level of education, I would argue. You're going to blame a million and a half people a week. <laughs> yeah, damn right. Seriously, though. I mean, I mean, how, I mean, would you honestly, so perfect example, here's a perfect example. I've got, you know, I'm handing out USB drives every single, you know, I go to every conference, I'm going to hand out USB drives. Are you going to trust that USB drive that I hand to you? Yes or no? Absolutely. Right. I never do. I throw them away. Exactly. So you wouldn't trust it. You maybe would validate it. And here's where it comes into trust, but validate. Great. He built a really nice piece of software. Let me just validate that. What's he going to validate against? You're going to validate against the GitHub repository that was had the original code. The code was changed, but the repository wasn't changed. Oh, yeah. No, totally. Yeah. So you've got potential validation there, but you've also got to look and go, okay, there's enough software security tools out there that you can run this up against. So let's say, hey, what is this piece of the code doing and why is it doing this? And by the way, it's about to siphon off all of your you know, bitcoins if you've got a thousand of stupid things or more. Yeah, I, you know, I, I really agree with Chris here that you can't blame Dominic in, in this particular instance because, you know, for the last 10 or 12 years, the behavior that he took upon, you know, that, that he exercised of, I have an open source project. Community contributions have come in over the years. Lately, there haven't been many. Someone came along, contributed some helpful, you know, improvements to the code. This is what open source is about. Like this is really, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning, the first public instance of a socially engineered, you know, hack or or malicious code injection into this kind of project. The pattern didn't exist there for someone like Dominic to say, wait, uh, just because someone's raising their hand to contribute, I need to do a background check on this person and whether they have good right. intent or not. This is a new pattern. So to go back and blame him for you know, if we had seen this for the last 10 years, this kind of pattern, yes, you know, Dominic should have done more background checking, if you will, or there should have been a, a place and maybe this, you know, helps through, um, you know, the Linux Foundation or, um, uh, you know, other uh, foundations, open source related foundations out there, or NPM, you know, to, to go and say, hey, if I'm Dominic, and I've created this package, and yes, it's used by two million people, but I really don't have time to maintain this thing anymore. Can I hand it to an organization to be the steward of that thing moving forward? Just because I created it and originated it, if I don't have time to maintain it anymore, can I hand it off? Uh, yeah. There aren't rules. So like Really? No, they're wrong. Like a criticality threshold. Is it a critical piece? Right. Is it a user yeah. piece? Or something? I think the other the other distinction for me 
having worked on both sides of that fence as well is am I charging something for it? In other words, if I'm putting something out there and I'm charging somebody for it, then I have an inherent beholden to, you know, that there's something beholden to me to actually make sure I keep it updated, I keep it patched, I keep doing everything else that I need to do with it. But if it's me just going, hey, there's this really cool widget that doesn't exist, everybody else have at it, use it, do whatever you want with it. I think there's a logic there to say, you know, and it's tough because I mean, there's some stuff I've got running around in like Africa and places. I'm maintaining that code and I'm maintaining the code base with another colleague of mine because of what it is and what it does. But there's a bunch of other tools I've put out there under various different names that are just out there. And I can't even remember half the damn stuff that's out there, to be perfectly honest. But you know, the, other, the other interesting thing about this is, is it pertains to these open source components and packages. Th think about the, the non-socially engineered approach to this. If we go back to struts, there, there was a vulnerability, and there have been multiple vulnerabilities, but if we mm -hmm. go back to the Equifax one, there was a vulnerability discovered. It was you know, uh, ethically disclosed. They, uh, they went through creating the new version. Apache struts went out and announced, hey, there's a vulnerable version of struts. We've updated it. There's a safer, newer one. They don't know at the Apache struts project who has downloaded their component and used it in any kind of environment. All right. they can do is raise their hand and say, we know that this thing is out there. So even if this the event stream thing was properly disclosed, it's downloaded 2 million times a week. Dominic has no idea who the 2 million people are that downloaded this thing. Right. Even if it was a known vulnerability and properly disclosed as the open source ecosystem you know, behaves, he doesn't know who his consumers are. So as much as he could go out and say, there was a vulnerability, we've created a new version, you should all download the new version. Like who's now responsible for downloading malicious versions of, uh, or the vulnerable versions of that code? There are still yeah. you know, 8,000 organizations out there that we can see at Sonotype downloading the, the uh, vulnerable versions of Apache struts. Who's that, liable in that case? That was 8,000 or 80,000, what were you saying? It's it's 8,000 organizations downloading between 80 and 100,000 vulnerable components, struts components every month. Yeah. Right. So, right. so, so if you look at those organizations, who's liable in that situation? Here's another, here's another concern I have. We go and hang Dominic out to dry. How many people are gonna take a step back from the open source community and not going to want to contribute what is that going to do are people going to turn and say i don't want to risk the wrath of contributing because of the potential consequences yeah. i mean that's my other concern now you get to a stage where somebody who's trying to do the right thing somebody who's like hey i need a widget i need this to work i'm doing a fantastic job at it is potentially hung out to dry for something that they really, yes, they controlled the original code. They didn't control where it went. They really didn't control how much it went down. Now, should they have made it private? Could they have made it private? Could they have restricted it and done other things? Yeah, potentially, but that wasn't the, that's not in the spirit of what they were trying to do. So that's my other concern. If somebody starts hanging people out to dry like this, how many people are going to take a step back from that community and go, I don't need to risk myself getting basically literally hung out to dry because of something that I put out that everybody else has decided to take up? Or... You know, again, you look at some of the 
the more high profile uh, security related issues. And we have we have uh, one of our colleagues still stuck in the US because of something that he built that then others used in a very, very malicious way. And now he potentially is responsible for it. That's not quite right for me. No, that's not right. Well, yeah, you know, think about the, the the other non-starter flip side of this argument is, oh my gosh, there are things like event stream or struts that have known vulnerabilities in there. We should just stop using open source. And it's like, okay, <laughs> you could have made that decision a decade ago, but because there are six billion JavaScript downloads a week, and you know a hundred plus billion you know uh, Java components downloaded uh, annually. Like that, you can't stop that train, right? No, You're no, that train, that's gone. Yeah, that that is, so, uh, and, and that's it. I mean, you, there's always a call. Every now and again, every couple of years, somebody raises their hand up and says, we should stop using open source, at which point I'm like, good luck on that one. Yeah, it's, it's impossible. Do you know, like, if they knew how much their organizations relied upon it, like all of their developers would quit tomorrow if that, yeah. were, if that were the case. It just doesn't e exist at any organization that's trying to scale and, and well, I think that's that, that's what it comes down to. I mean, if you think about it, it's so many applications that have been built, are being built, and are being planned are jigsaw puzzles. I mean, we have now taken pieces and components of code from numerous different sources. We don't have teams of people now sitting down developing. We have teams of people who are building components who are basically bringing bits of the jigsaw together to make somebody's you know venture capitalist dream come true that's what we're doing these days guys i'm gonna round it up here chris and derek and i will be at the rsa conference in san francisco in march and we will continue this discussion at awesome. the tech ops days there uh, with many more people <laughs> cannot cannot wait always <laughs> always a fun time We'll have a thousand people there. We're going to get some new voices. Chris is going to bring a new speaker and introduce them. John Willis is going to be there. Courtney Kissler is going to be there, bringing new people into the fold. So yeah. we hope to see you there. The discussion is worthwhile, and I hope you'll join the discussion in general. We're going to be talking about it at DevSecOpsDays.com almost daily now because that's how often this stuff is being serviced. This is the DevSecOps Days podcast. DevSecOps Days podcast is supported by OWASP, dedicated to enabling organizations to conceive, develop, acquire, operate, and maintain applications that can be trusted. And with support from the Sonatype Nexus platform, allowing companies to automatically control open source risk. 